Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. We're between the presidential election and inauguration day. Getting a handle on where the media stands is more important than ever. Today, I'm joined by Ben Dominich, publisher of The Federalist. This is episode six. From his start as a young blogger to working in the Bush administration to starting The Federalist and looking at what comes next in the media world, we start with the media landscape as the Trump era winds down for now. I want to start with uh, talking about kind of the where we're at with the media landscape right now. Uh, the Federalist was founded in 2013, I'd say seven years ago, but a very different media landscape than we're in right now. Uh, then a few years after it was founded came Trump. That sort of upended things a bit. Now the Trump era appears to be winding down. Uh, and, and I'm sort of looking back at the last four years, but in particular to where we are now. And, and you wrote a piece earlier this month on the new Contra's insurgents against legacy media. And you mentioned a few outlets like Joe Rogan, Glenn Greenwald, also Megyn Kelly, who my other gig of, of uh, producing her show. Uh, and I, I'm curious, you know, in writing that piece, but, it, but really in just sort of thinking about the Federalist role and, and looking out across the landscape, wh- where do you think we're at right now? Sure. Well, you know, first off, Steve, I just want to say I really am interested in, in your writing. And I think that your uh, work with your newsletter is is really phenomenal um, and uh, and is very timely. It seems to me that there's really interesting things going on in the media landscape. And to be honest, the genesis of that new Contras piece was that I and my co-author, uh, Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist, uh, we both read with some interest this uh, Ben Smith piece that ran in The New York Times about Andrew Sullivan making the jump to the world of Substack away from New York Magazine, um, and there's a there's a pretty pointed quote uh, from uh, uh, Katie Herzog that I'm not sure ended up in our, our piece, but basically she implied that uh, he was a lot more interested in the kind of pieces about race and uh, Charles Murray and intelligence and stuff like that that Andrew had approved many years ago, as opposed to the interesting things that were going on within the world of the media landscape, where I think we've seen uh, the culture war have a really interesting effect. Um, the, the, the Federalist exists uh, for a couple of reasons, but w- one of the biggest reasons I would say that it exists is because uh, Andrew Breitbart, sadly, uh, many years ago passed away. Right. And, and one of the things that I think people forget about Breitbart is how much he was focused on the culture as being the primary uh, realm of disagreement in the country. People forget that big Hollywood was his first, you know, big site as opposed to focusing on Washington or on immigration policy or the like. And that's because Andrew really understood, as he would repeatedly say, that politics is downstream from culture. What we've seen is politics infect every avenue of culture. And The Federalist really was founded in part because we felt like while there are some great legacy institutions on the American right that have been around for a long time, most prominently among them, obviously, National Review, you know, National Review was built to win the Cold War. And the ideas that flowed out of it, you know, flowed into uh, government and leadership in the Republican Party. And thankfully, you know, had an enormous impact, particularly on the presidency of Ronald Reagan, and led to the Cold War being won. Uh, But they're not really built, I think, for the culture war of the moment which requires you to be a lot more engaged in what I think they would describe uh, some, somewhat accurately as low culture, na- namely pop culture and music, movies and Netflix series, all manner of issues that I think are actually enormously important and consumed by uh, you know Americans when it comes to mass media at a huge rate. And from my perspective, the right of center view, the traditionalist view, particularly the religious conservative, the the uh, faithful Christian or Jew, was not being accurately represented in terms of their perspective on what was going on in the American culture. And that instead, those voices were kind of being relegated if they were entertained at all. And what that really meant was that the landscape of cultural discussion was completely being conceded to the left, where you have all these entertainment magazines and uh, and blogs and places that are not just uh, commenting on things that are happening, but actually driving decisions that are being made in Hollywood and elsewhere about the kind of content that's being created. And I think that one of the big uh, factors that we wanted to wrestle with 
was that we needed to have younger voices feature a lot of, of Gen X, Millennial, and Gen Z voices uh, that we wanted to have more of a focus on content generated for women because that they are really the drivers of content in a lot of ways. Other than major blockbuster action movies, um, they have far greater impact than I think people really understand, particularly young moms on the way that culture is made. And so from my perspective, this is a, a moment in media where over the past several years, and I think really beginning with, with Trump's rise in 2015, people started to pay attention to the culture war in ways that didn't just cut in normal uh, in normal different avenues that you might have had in the past, where the, everything was framed in terms of the moral majority or Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson right. as being somehow the significant voices there. That's not, not true anymore. And it hasn't been true for a long time. And now you have all these new voices who have established careers in media to the point where they have a following, where people respect them and they pay attention to what they're saying. They all have different tool sets, but they're all finding the normal corporate world of media to be suffocating or too likely to have animosity toward them based on views expressed that don't you know, necessarily fly with every advertiser. Um, and we have a new circumstance where there's a lot of very woke uh, uh, organizations out there and people who like to band together to try to get people pushed off of platforms if they say anything that they object to. Right. And so that was what that piece was about. But it's also something that I think has animated a lot of what we've been doing from the beginning, which is to try to provide um, a basis and a platform for a lot of views that are held by a lot of Americans uh, and that just are completely uh, unwelcome in the traditional corporate media. As, as I would like to say going forward, we're going to speak for the 70 plus million Americans who are unhirable at the New York Times opinion page, uh, as we <laughs> saw after after uh, November 3rd. And I think that that's going to be something that we spoke to before and that we're going to continue to speak to. Yeah. I mean, there is really like this very narrow sameness now that's happening in the media space. I, I, I look at even since that piece was published, there's been look at like what's happened with Vox, um, you know, yep. Matt, Matt Iglesias, who is certainly a progressive writer of the left, um, was, you know, I don't want to say he was pushed out, but now has ended up at Substack. Ezra Klein has now gone to the New York Times uh, and and left the publication that he helped start. You know, there there is this very narrowness now to it. And, and it's, it's, you know, I write about it a lot as like the Acela Media, the, D, you know, DC and New York based news outlets. But it really is, you know, it's not obviously you're in, D, you know, DC and New York also. It's, it's not it's not just people in DC and New York, but really a very very small group of people that make up the 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 majority of the legacy media establishment media, and it's it seems like it's pushing out others that that you know would normally find some sort of home just because they they may deviate slightly in in their point of view. The danger to me is not so much the sameness of location as the sameness of ideas. Yeah, it is, we have a such a a mediocre approach to opinion uh, in this moment that I mean it's astounding. Now there, we can hold up maybe the most prominent example from the recent couple of months, which is the Tom Cotton op-ed, which led to massive ramifications, you know, for the New York Times. You know, multiple, uh, you know, an editor fired. Uh, you know, people moved around, ultimately leading to the you know, the Barry Weiss departure, et cetera. Um, and that I think got a lot of attention because of the different people involved. But just consider the fact that, and, and I say this as someone who has done a number of events with Ezra over the years, we get paired together a lot because we kind of came up at a similar time. Uh, you know, he founded Vox a little bit before I founded The Federalist. It makes uh, for, you know, some interesting conversations. Yeah. I, I understand why he's going to the New York Times. It makes a lot of sense. But I also think that once again, the Times ends up with a situation where they have a particular technocratic, globally minded, neoliberal view of the world that they want to see espoused repeatedly over and over again. And the only people that can kind of differentiate themselves from that are, you know, Douthat, Stevens, and occasionally Brooks. But they, again, this is a sort of situation where <sighs> yeah, they that... really can't go too far afield. And I going too far afield could be espousing views held by the vast majority of Americans. I'm not which even is sure. Kind of crazy. Yeah. All three of those, maybe one of those three actually differs in that, in that respect. I think Ross mm -hmm. does. I, I'm, I don't even know about, yeah. about, you know, Stevens and, and, uh, and Brooks. You know, I asked, uh, Ross, uh, in January, I believe was when I interviewed him about his book. I asked him what it felt like to be the last 
true conservative hired by the New York <laughs> Times. And he said, oh, no, you know, Brett. And I said, well, no, uh, you know, but but the, the point is, I think that that's really true. And the reason I think that's true is because while we've heard a lot about these media silos, a point that I try to make, um, and I actually, I made it uh, a couple of years ago at the, perhaps the most siloed of places, despite the fact that they think of themselves as so global and cosmopolitan, the Aspen ideas uh, <laughs> gathering in, nice. uh, out in Aspen. I pointed out that if, if you are a typical left of center reader of the New York Times, you actually have to work a lot harder than right of center people in order to get outside of your bubble. And that reason is that if we look at the, the statistics that we have about media consumption, sure, you know, right of center people watch a lot of Fox News and they read a lot of right of center websites, but they also read the Wall Street Journal, which despite the fact that they have an editorial page that is conservative, you know, is you know, straight up and down, you know, news reporting, even perhaps a little left of center in terms of their biases. I think that the the ramifications of the fact that uh, that uh Conservatives tend to listen to a lot more radio, including even NPR. NPR is typically pretty high up there in terms of their consumption patterns. It's very easy for me to see storylines on Netflix and Hulu and all of the different streaming services that conflict with what I might think if I'm a conservative. But you actually have to seek out these other things if you are left of center. And it turns out that many people don't like when they creep into territory that they believe ought to belong exclusively to their opinions. So the fact that there's, you know, 19 stories, 19 opinions in a row from the New York Times that uh, that all support your worldview. And then Nick Kristoff comes along and says, actually, maybe Trump is right about reopening schools. Like, there's hell to pay for that. It's like and, seriously jarring. Yeah, I know. I, I think that you talk about the success of the Federalist. I do think, obviously, you guys do a lot of reporting as well. Um, but but I do think that the the having it be a platform for opinion that is diverse and, you know, I mean, you may publish something, you know, two different pieces that disagree with with each other. Uh, you know, there is something that often on the same day. Yeah, we like to do, I like right. to do that. If I have a fight, the fight isn't is, is uh, instructive. And usually you can come out at the end and say one argument's weaker than the other. And that's I, I mean, I, I just I'm very opposed to the uh, the idea that a publication needs to speak with one voice. We literally have, you know, we've never endorsed a candidate. We have literally only written one editorial that we've, we've repeated a couple times uh, in, in our entire span. And that is that we, we are opposed to the continuation of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, which we, <laughs> which we do not think should exist anymore. And Nerd Prom is really our only editorial That's opinion. <laughs> and, and I don't want to say that that was actually achieved because I feel like Biden will go right back to having it. But but at least it was tempting these past couple of years to, to have uh, to have a little bit of it, of it diminished. Yeah, so. well, that that is also though I think what is so crazy about the Tom Cotton situation, and I know you know a lot of people have made a lot about the Tom Cotton New York Times, the way that the there was an uprising, you know, that started in internal Slack channels and spilled out on Twitter, and then the editor's gone. But this was not. A, a report, you know, this was not a rep reported piece. This was not a news story that they felt was, you know, reported the wrong way. Or this was a literal, uh, you know, called, col you know, an opinion column that no one was trying to make the sense that this was even the correct opinion. But that mm -hmm. was unacceptable in the New York Times. And it really was was an eye-opening moment. And actually, you know, then I, I thought about places like the Federalist that, that really dive into opinion that, you know, I'm sure you have published lots of pieces at the Federalist that you disagree with, and the the idea that the New York Times would not be able to do that was was alarming. It was it would be impossible for me not to uh, publish pieces that I disagree with because we publish so many pieces that conflict with each other in opinion and and argue back and forth. I mean, you know, we've published you know, defenses of polyamory, you know, and that kind of thing, you know, th th there's, there's all, I mean, uh, I actually, uh, I can't, I can't say that I don't totally, uh, uh, that I don't agree with this somewhat, but we published a defense of legalizing cocaine. <laughs> I mean, come on, you know, this is, this is something that I think is important just to have people uh, argue out and basically make the strongest argument for their case. Um, uh, Jesse Single and a couple of other people have used the phrase uh, steel manning an argument. It's the reverse of straw manning one, <laughs> where you try to make the strongest possible argument uh, for the other side. And from my perspective, that's actually a, a very useful thing to have happen. Uh, sometimes I think the arguments could be you know, stronger than they are. We try to help our writers make them strong. But a good part of this too, to me, is 
figuring out the direction of the right going forward. And when I say the right, I mean big tent. I mean, you know, all manner of it. And and that includes all the varied sort of factions of it um, that that have been, you know, trying to figure out this current moment. Uh, you had, you know, this incredible media figure come along and steal a party away from uh, a group of leaders that thought that they had a pretty good hold on what people wanted and where things were going to end up. And now, you know, you you have the very same very same people trying to figure out where to go from here. I mean, Marco Rubio, you know, Ron DeSantis, Rick Scott, the Florida men, you know, will probably all be factors in 2024 potentially if they, if they end up running. And the biggest Florida man of them all, Donald Trump, you know, <laughs> right. is 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 the one who you know has the is the 800 pound gorilla who could end up uh, determining this going forward too. And so, to me, this is just a fascinating time. In American politics, uh, to be writing about all these things, but but to return to to your point about the media, given that this is such a fascinating time, the fact that we have a media that continues to want to cordon off the people who are allowed to have a voice within the public square on these matters, you know, as as if I mean, you know, if you just look at the landscape of the people who end up on you know most of these uh, uh, Sunday shows. You know, by the way, a, a relic of the past, something that was, you know, uh, went basically. I, I mean, it might no no offense, it might its relevance might have died with Tim Russert, uh, R.I.P. But it's one of these things where Sunday shows used to really matter. Now you have all these twenty four hour news stations, so you get people on there. You get the Secretary of State on a Tuesday night, kind of a thing. Right. Um, but it does seem to me important to say what is the representation at these tables of of the perspective offered from the left and the right in America. And the left's perspective is almost entirely Clintonian or Obama uh, people. It's very technocratic, um, very neoliberal. It rejects the possibility of any kind of uh, economic populism along the lines of what Bernie Sanders and the social justice folks have offered. It, it doesn't it, really have. A, it's only ahead. running back right now. Also, by the way, at least so, so far with who's uh, who Biden is selecting. In exactly. His, uh, no, every, everything it's, it's just like they would like to revert back to 2014 or something and pretend like none of this happened. And, uh, and to me, that's, that's very short sighted. And on the flip side, I think that the, the real lack of representatives of what is a more, um, you know, I mean, you can call it working class because certainly the president did improve, uh, you know, the, the ratings of Republicans among working class Americans. But I would say it is simply a more populist and more nationalist approach to policy generally. Um, and those views were simply not represented in any consistent manner by the media. And look, I I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, if 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 I can expect anything about the media, they're going to want to revert to type and they're going to want to pretend like, yes, we can go back to, oh, you know, uh, uh, Republicans are the party of the Chamber of Commerce and big business, which just hasn't been true for a long time and uh, and is not really true in terms of, of the people who are certainly going to lead the party into the future. And that to me is just a very simplistic uh, an inaccurate uh, assessment of what's going on. And it's one of the reasons why I think you have to have a, a wider swath and include more voices. You know, we we ran several pieces this cycle from people who were Bernie Sanders supporters because they were talking about these class issues differently right. than, you know, the, than the typical things that you would read uh, in places like the New York Times. And so, uh, you know, we think that that's very valuable and important. And they were the types of people who were going into places where obviously the you know the president ended up overperforming in a lot of these ways, uh, where you had immigrant communities, working class, minority communities who were not at all down with defund the police, who were very much opposed to those types of things. And I think that if you had had reporters who were actually going to those places, they would have been less surprised by the fact that the Rio Grande Valley and and major Latino you know pockets across Texas and Florida you know turned out in mass to support Trump. Later, we'll talk with Dominic about the unique amount of hate he and the Federalist receives from the Acela media, from the corporate media, and the hate his wife receives, too. But first, Dominic's interview with Donald Trump. There does feel like there's two things happening here at once. There is obviously the rise of digital, the, the you know, the, I think the TV ratings are going to still be fine, but they're slowly in decline, and certainly the influence that they have of legacy media is declining. Um, so that's one element of it. But there is another element, and you wrote about this in that same piece, um, talking about like rising and Sagar and Jetty and Crystal mm-hmm. Ball, who are, you know, 
in theory, like a like a like a new age crossfire, uh, you know, from the right and the left. Except they both, and I know Crystal Ball was actually at MSNBC before, but certainly in the last couple of years, I'd say she's crystallized her her own stance on things to the point that they are both completely unrepresentative of the kinds of voices you typically hear on cable news or on the Sunday shows that are there now. And it does feel very much of a moment of this this Trump era that we're in. Uh, what do you think of them and kind of that point of view rising, uh, you know, as of as of right now? I think that what they're doing is of the utmost importance. And it's not just because they've tapped into something that's become popular. Uh, it's It's because they represent the possibility of having a more authentic argument. There is a whole thing going on now, and it's been going on for a long time, where everyone wants to keep everything preserved in amber. And I really do believe this is a nostalgia element driven by the baby boomers, but unfortunately inherited by a lot of people who should know better in terms of producing this kind of thing, where cable news defined by these uh, old frames continues to uh, have arguments that are not really tied to the current moment. L- let me just give you a perspective on this from someone who, you know, I'm I'm an older millennial. I was born in 1982. Okay. I now employ people whose first memory was 9-11, okay? And who don't understand anything about the frames, no offense, of Reagan era divides. When people start talking about the divides of the 1980s, they have to understand that like millennials aren't young anymore. <laughs> millennials own homes, they have families, they are, you know, uh, they're starting to approach middle age. This is not a situation where you can, you know, refer to uh, the, you know, the millennials as being a generation of youngsters. And yet when you watch cable news, that typically is the way that they're framed and and they get treated as if you know, they're just, they're the young bucks who, who don't really know much about anything and they're kind of an afterthought. And look, I understand that in a perspective or in a time when, you know, the Commission on Presidential Debates, you know, has you know uh, a collection of octogenarians and septuagenarians where, you know, the leadership of the Democratic Party, I mean, uh, Matt Stoller, one of the populist uh, lefties, made the joke the other day about the naming of Janet Yellen that finally the uh, octogenarian Democrats are allowing the young 70-year-olds to <laughs> take, take a turn at policy. It, to me, there's just such a dominant warping force of, of the baby boomer impact on media. And obviously, Donald Trump is included in this. You know, f- Trump, you know, Clinton, and George W. Bush were all born in the same year, 1946. And that's just an incredible you know, thing to think about in terms of our presidential history. Now you have a silent generation uh, uh, president and Joe Biden. Um, and so from my perspective, a big part of this is there's a need for a youth movement, a youth movement that would include people who are, you know, in, the, in their early 40s very quickly. <laughs> you know, uh, and and people who have a perspective that is not simply tied to the past and to previous frames of the way that politics works, which is not to say those voices need to be silenced. It's just to say you've got to include some of these younger voices too. And I think that one of the elements of this is that there's an outsider factor. As you said, Crystal Ball is someone who was at MSNBC, but I think that both she and Sire have a an outsider temperament Oh yeah, to what they're doing, and I would actually include. I know this is this might sound uh, uh, silly to some of your, of your readers, and I'm not blowing smoke at you, but I actually think that Megyn Kelly has an outsider view now, and yeah. I think that that's what makes her someone who actually has an appeal. Part of the issue that I think hampered her in the space that she ended up at NBC was that she was being asked to be something that she wasn't, uh, or that they were trying to put her into a different category than where she naturally exists. And I think that in a way, you know, it's, it's one of these things where do you want to be safe or do you want to be compelling? And I think that what she has always been is someone who goes toward the compelling side. Well, you know, let the safe people go and work the, you know, the early morning show at, at Fox NFL, you know, like that, that's not, that's not the space that you want to be in. That's because, because those are not the people who are going to have uh, an impact. No offense, Carissa Thompson to the broader media landscape of, of a conversation. And in a way that hits both the culture and the politics in ways that are interesting. Um, and one of the things that I think, you know, has been most true about Rogan is talk about a guy who, you know, came from within certain industries, but certainly as an outsider, you know, he brings this kind of everyman approach to things where uh, where he's willing to 
entertain a lot of different arguments, go all over the place with different things. His guests, uh, you know, just run the gamut in right. terms of, of their subject area. And the idea that someone like him could develop a following with these two plus hour, you know, uh, conversations. I mean, gosh, gosh almighty, you know, he's, he, he talked to Tom Green the other day for two and a half hours. <laughs> I, like, how is that as popular as it is? Yeah, well, or I think it's some random professor from somewhere. I mean, it, it, it is yes. really, well, but it got, you bring up a good point because it does feel like in the media world, the best outsiders uh, were insiders at one point, um, yeah. you know, and you have that experience, and you and I would I would honestly put Donald Trump right in this in the same category because Absolutely. he's been there, he's been in you know the same rooms, he knows how the 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 you know the inside works, and now is sort of this turncoat. Uh, I, I wonder you you interviewed Donald Trump, and and I, I I'm curious. I, I think the media missed many things about Donald Trump over the last four years, but what what stands out to you about about him that you think the media really you know maybe from the right and the left is didn't really get right. So I think that the the biggest thing that the media missed about Trump that his that his fans perceive uh is I think that they misunderstood the fact that he is a a better judge of the dynamics in American culture uh than maybe any politician that I've seen in, in my lifetime. Now, I don't think you can you know, say of all time because there's certainly people who tapped into that. But I, I think people sort of falsely put him into this category of, and I would put myself in this too, as merely instinctive. Like, oh, he's just, you know, everything he does is reactive. And he just, you know, it's all knee jerk. I, I don't think that's the case, actually. I think he's a little bit more intelligent than that. And I think that the, you know, people... Uh, people, I think, tend to downgrade cultural intelligence versus like policy intelligence. You know, someone like Paul Ryan obviously knows so much more about policy than Donald Trump would ever learn. But there's a reason why Paul Ryan, you know, was speaker two years ago. And now we're not really talking about that. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of that has to do with recognizing the difference between green eye shade conservatism, you know, this fiscal policy, turning the knobs, uh, pulling the levers and tapping into what actually appeals to people. I mean, there's no question after this cycle that, you know, Kevin McCarthy was an excellent recruiter for Republicans. I mean, they're going to end up with the most diverse House of Representatives class they've ever had in their history. Um, and, you know, one that is, you know, heavily, much more heavily female than anything that they've ever had. And, you know, how does that happen in a climate where, you know, people were very worried, for instance, when Will Hurd, the congressman, uh, you know, from Texas, announced that he would be uh, stepping down, you know, a critical district, a majority-minority district, very evenly divided, and then his replacement wins by more than he won. Uh, and how does that happen? It happens with good recruitment and work, you know, on the politics side. But I also think it understands tapping into some of the cultural elements that go into play here. That's how you knock off some of these incumbents and, and win some of these races. And so one of the things that I think Trump really understands to a greater degree than than people would give him credit for necessarily is uh, a lot of these cultural dynamics that I think Republicans have been loath to touch. Right. They've wanted to stay away from them. They've wanted to, to you know, not talk about them. Now, is that to say that the way that Trump handled them uh, is is was always the right way? I don't think so. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, you know, I think that he mishandled them, you know, very frequently. But at the same time, I think that his instinct was always, I can't leave this subject alone. I have to say something about it. Whenever he felt like it was something that percolated up enough, he felt the need to weigh in. And I think that people who who dislike that, who underestimate that, um, have missed uh, some key factors here. A good example of that from this past time, it would be the level of animus directed at Trump uh, regarding the number of times that he brought up socialism on the campaign trail. Uh, clearly, you know, there was a lot of, of media folks, including some on the right, who were saying, Joe Biden's not a socialist, Joe Biden's not a socialist, you know, this is unfair, blah, 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 blah. 
that's fine. I, I would argue from the other side that what Trump was really saying and what a lot of, of people would say is that he was a, that Biden will ultimately, you know, put people in place who will do a lot of really crazy things that people will dislike. Right. I mean, the early signs, you know, when it comes to executive orders and when it comes to, you know, just something as simple as restoring the kangaroo courts under Title IX on higher ed campuses across the country. That's the sort of thing that people got irritated with under the Obama years, and they're going to be irritated with it again. If they end up, you know, suing a bunch of nuns over, uh, you know, birth control and the like, people are going to be irritated with that again. So there's, there's certain things that I think Trump would, uh, would reach out and touch that other Republican politicians might've stayed away from. And then, you know, what happens? You have all of these reports after this election, you know, from Florida and from, and from other places as well that, Hey, socialism didn't, it was not a good play for us. Right. We right. really don't like it. You know, internal calls from, from Democrats and Jim Clyburn saying no more of this socialist crap, you know, that, to me, that's an example of Trump understanding a cultural moment in which he needed to talk about something and wrap it, wrap himself in the flag and kind of say, this is never going to happen here, that other Republicans might have found uh, gauche or tacky, uh, but I actually think plays very well to the American people um, and, and is ex- an example of, of something that I think people underestimated about. How Dominic got his start in the media and his very early experience with cancellation. That's next. But first... The Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. No subscriptions, no credit cards, no trials, no censorship. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. But first, it's time for another edition of Blocked, Stories of Ridiculous Media Twitter. This is where, as a way to get to know me a little bit, I tell you a story of someone who has blocked me on Twitter. This one kind of hurts. I've known Chris Licht, who was the executive producer of Morning Joe before moving to CBS this morning and then in 2016 to The Late Show with Stephen Colbert for years. We're both Syracuse alumni. I think he's an incredibly talented producer. We used to email back and forth, too. Sometimes he'd tell me things he didn't like, except that I tweeted. Sometimes... I guess he'd say things that he did. But shortly after I put out a tweet critical of Colbert, among other late night hosts, for their lack of coverage of Harvey Weinstein, I realized I was blocked from following Licht. I don't know if it was this or something else in the month or two after, but that was sadly the end. But there's good news. Shortly after I published this story in the Fourth Watch newsletter, I got in touch with Chris, had a nice conversation about what happened, and was unblocked. Big news. Blocked on October 5th, 2017. Unblocked earlier this year. Happy ending here for Blocked. Now back to Ben Dominich. You have an interesting uh, background. I I didn't really know this, but I was digging in a little bit. You started in the media world really young. I mean, a teenager. Uh, In Mm -hmm. fact, there was a a 2000 Washington Post piece uh, that that described your column as recapping the political talk television programs for the World Wide Web site of the conservative National Review magazine. That's how old (laughs) this was because the World Wide Web site. how did you get into, you know, what, what is your journey into the media world? And, and what do you think that brings to what you're doing, what you're doing now? Well, uh, I mean, my, my journey kind of was in fits and starts. I, uh, I started out uh, as, uh, you know, an intern for a number of different places. I, I actually interned uh, for, uh, for human events. Um, uh, when I was, uh, when I was a teenager, I, uh, I interned for National Review uh, during my uh, college years. I dropped out of college after 9-11, after my junior year to go and work for the White House speechwriting office uh, for uh, under George W. Bush and do research uh, for, for them, fact-checking and the like. Um, and, you know, that was something that you know, was a, a an opportunity that came to me because I had been at, at NR and and got to know uh, Matt Scully and and uh, met John McConnell when I was there and uh, and worked uh, a bit for for Pete Weiner and for uh, Mike Gerson and met David Frum and the like. So it was kind of odd to be <laughs> you know here twenty years later and and still kind of talking. To, I'm sure that it irritates them to to, to talk to a you know, former intern and researcher. Anyway, um, I I went from there to. Uh, uh, HHS, where I was a speechwriter uh, for Tommy Thompson, and then to uh, and then to Capitol Hill, where, where I worked for John Cornyn as his chief speechwriter for his first couple of years uh, in the Senate, uh, the senator from Texas. Um, 
I had always though been interested in uh, in the media landscape and wanted to to do something that would be uh, have an impact there. I, I got to meet a couple of friends. Uh, at the time, who were interested in starting something to create a right of center daily coast, which it might be you know odd for people to remember, but actually that was a big deal back in two thousand four, yeah, two thousand three. You know, Daily Coast was viewed as kind of the center of Howard Dean world, and and a lot of the people who were you know uh, pushing for dramatic uh, kind of uh, shifts uh, to focus on online um, among uh, among that uh, party cohort. Uh, and there was a real need, I felt, for a, a community site that would have the ability for people to, to blog and, and do different things. Uh, we started that up. Uh, within a few months, Eric Erickson came around uh, and he eventually would take the whole thing over. Right. right. We would sell it to... Um, uh, to uh, Eagle Publishing and and the folks over there eventually, um, and it, it was kind of a it obviously it's still around. It's now part of the the Salem Group, but it's one of those things where you know you look back on something and it, just in terms of the makeup of of who we were, you know, I and my fellow co-founders were kind of uh, the the gamut of you know a traditional Republican in uh, one friend of mine. Uh, a more kind of hawkish—I don't want to say neoconservative, but but someone who's you know more mindful of, of foreign policy and another—and then me, who is more of a, a populist type, um, you know, a, a kind of somebody who would come up in in that side of things. And I I look back on that, and it seems to me to be a very different time in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. the culture war issues were nowhere near as prevalent. We we argued a lot about uh, gay marriage, and we a lot argued a lot about. You know, uh, you know other issues that were that seemed very operative at the time, but I think that it seems like a very different landscape uh, than the one that we had today. Yeah, um, it's interesting though. I, I have to say because even before that, there there was the the, the two thousand six Washington Post incident. You talking about a different time. It feels as I'm going back through this, almost very similar in terms of like this early stage cancellation of someone who, you know, has <laughs> what was described at the time as social conservative voice. Uh, and, you know, this was pre, you know, Facebook as a, you know, uh, media entity. This was this was before Twitter existed. And yet, you know, between the Daily Coast and Atrios yep. and digging up things you've written when you were, you know, a teenager and, and uh, you know, it, it almost like reminded me that happened now when, you know, a person who is is outwardly a social conservative gets hired at a publication like the Washington Post would be. So the funny thing, there are a couple of things, funny things about it. First off, uh, I appreciate that. I actually got a similar uh, note from uh, a fellow who actually hired me uh, back in the day and was and was at the Washington uh, Post at the time. We we keep in uh, in contact and occasionally uh, have a beer together. Um, the basically because for your listeners and 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 any lack of of knowledge about this uh back in 2006 after having uh left uh the the senate to go and and work um in briefly in publishing at regnery i was approached uh, along with a couple of other people to go and work for this new washington post set up where they were going to have blogs um and uh, one of the the current blogger that I believe that they had already was Dan Frumkin, the lefty who's still around occasionally, and, and uh, though I don't know where he is now. Um, and I think they just felt the need to have, we need to have somebody who's right of center, basically. Uh, I They came to me for suggestions, uh, not for uh, me as a candidate. And I gave them suggestions, and then they came back to me. And I took I took the job. I ended up writing only a handful of posts before I was uh, very much canceled by uh, the the folks at the Daily Coast and and a couple of others uh, over what they had dug up from my uh, student newspaper years when I was seventeen. It's crazy. Um, well, I think it's crazy, but I also think there's a justification for it. Namely, that, and I'll tell you this, uh, which I think I've, I may have said it before, but I'm not sure I've said it on a uh, uh, you know on a podcast. Uh, I honestly didn't know I had done it. Um, I, I had no idea I had done it, and it was literally just sloppiness and and you know a, a terrible approach to kind of uh, writing a, a number of movie reviews that you know had other things in it uh, that were pulled from other people's reviews and the like. Um, and you know ultimately it was just like a shock to me because I I honestly didn't think I had done it. Um, and you know when you I the I'm 
38 now, I'm almost 39. Uh, I have very few memories of what I did when I was 17. Um, I still even then, you know, was, was surprised to learn it. And so it was one of these things where that kind of was a shock to my system. I didn't know what I was going to be able to do and, uh, and what had kind of happened with me and, and with, uh, folks at Regnery was, uh, they had been uncomfortable with me taking on this job because basically blogging, keep in mind, was very new at the time. Yeah. And so I had gone to them and asked for approval, which I had gotten. Uh, and and they had said, oh, yeah, sure, you can do this. And, and then they figured out, then they realized, I think, how prominent it would be or that it would like, it, you know, be something that would like make me a thing. Uh, because I had presented it to them as I have to write two posts a day and like I can easily do that, you know, outside of my editorial duties. Uh, but they basically made me choose. And so I chose the Washington Post gig and then ended up without a job. Right. Well, and, and <laughs> so I have to say, though, going back to that, I mean, yes, and you did apologize for what, you know, what they were saying about plagiarism. But I have to say, like, it even in that original Howard Kurtz piece, it was as much about the things you wrote, I believe, actually, about Dan Frupkin and John yes. Kerry. And, you know, it was digging up the the kinds of things that were, you know, maybe less sophisticated than you would be writing now. But as a teenager that leaned right of center, that was what you were writing. It was as much about that, I feel like, then it, about it a, a couple was. lines in a movie review. It, it definitely, it, no, it definitely was. And to be honest, I think that part of it was that I had said some pretty nasty things about Frumkin and I had insulted his looks and things like that uh, from behind the the anonymity of of early blogging days um, and you know I understand that like that's not a, a you know something that I think you uh, one ought to do um, but it's also something that I I can at least have the defense of I'm 17 or 18 years old when I'm writing these things and I don't really know any better yeah. uh, but but you know here's what I would say the the truth is that that taught me something pretty early on. And in retrospect, I would rather have something like that happen early on, in part because what what I basically faced at that point in my career was a choice. And my choice was, look, you can kind of get out of this whole writing thing. You can, you know, uh, take a step back away from it. You could maybe just go behind the scenes and work in, in you know, uh, different capacities where, you know, there's there's plenty of money to be made just being a speechwriter for people or, you know, doing that kind of work. Um, but what I decided to do was go in the other direction. And, you know, it was still a few years later after that, that, that I started up the newsletter that I still write today, the transom. But one of the things that I really felt like was I have to be 100% diligent about this. You know, you have to be careful about what you write and you have to consider it and you have to, you know, put a lot of thought into it and, and write it uh, and write it carefully. And this is something that I felt like I would rather do that and have the additional challenge that, hey, if you say a bunch of stuff that people don't like, that, you know, they might come cancel you, but you just need to make it as strong as you possibly can. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's that really made the difference, not just in my career, but in terms of the existence of the Federalists. Because if if I had not sort of gone in the direction of doing, you know, the uh, you know th this kind of daily writing that I do, where I'm you know churning out you know a significant number of words almost every day, uh, then I, I think that. I would have ended up, you know, maybe having a very different career. And, and I'm not sure that the Federalist would end up existing because that was kind of my entree to, to even having that as an opportunity. We're going to end with family and the unique hate that is aimed at him and his wife. And the fourth watch lightning round, six questions, 60 seconds. But first, couldn't end this election cycle without a look at a piece that was published about CNN shortly after Election Day. It was written by Esquire, an oral history of how CNN journalists survived election 2020. That was the original headline. It actually, the headline was changed shortly after that. But let's go look at some of the ways the CNN journalists survived election 2020. Van Jones said that Tuesday night was devastating. The polling had been suggesting that there would be a, just a wipeout of Trump. And the fact that it wasn't a wipeout was crushing. They sent us home around three or four in the morning. We had drivers. Wow. At least he had a car service to drive him home. There was a lot of talk about coffee in the uh, Esquire piece. Wolf Blitzer, for example, survived despite not having Starbucks. He said, I was hoping someone would go to Starbucks. We do have an excellent coffee machine that makes Starbucks black coffee. And if you put some milk in it with one Splenda, it may not be a venti skim latte, but it's very good. Okay. All right. 
survive that way. John King spends a lot of time at his magic wall. Luckily, he did get in some showers. He said, the American people should know that I bathe every day. I promise. I took a shower every day and changed my suit every day. I kept a couple extra shirts in my office. Look, I was directly involved in a shorter but still lengthy election 2012 at CNN. It involved a lot of people that work hard, often long hours, and do a great job, including the three people I just talked about, Van Jones, Wolf Blitzer, John King, like them. But Maybe a self-serving oral history about how you, quote, survived isn't a great look. All right, back to Ben Dominich. Fast forward to 2020, you know, certainly the 2016 uh, to 2020, the conservatives in general are get, you know, get it pretty harsh on social media like Twitter. The Federalist, though, seems to, to bring out a different kind of uh, anger and, and harshness, the whole funding thing. And, mm. and I have to say, you know, not only that, um, you're married, married to Meghan McCain, you have a, a new daughter, so congratulations uh, on that. She also, I would say, brings out yep. critics of on both the left and the right in a very unique, sort of strangely harsh way. I, I wonder what you think that is. So uh, I think that they're, first off, that's true. And thank you for the compliment. Um, uh, the I think that there's a couple of reasons for it. Um, one is, in in my wife's case, uh, she is, to my knowledge, uh, the only pro-life, pro-gun uh, commentator on uh, on daytime TV, um, and in, and certainly the only uh, pro-life, pro-gun woman who is a commentator on daytime TV. Uh, that's his own animal. Uh, in the sense of of you know you don't belong here, and there's also I think a fr- added frustration that you know, uh, and I don't want to speak for her, but I would say that she tends to defend quite vociferously uh, a lot of voters who are conservative and Republican and support Donald Trump across the country, and I think people would very much like her to be in the same category uh, as any number of of lefty, uh, uh, quote unquote, rhino Republicans, um, who, uh, don't do that at all. Um, I think what they're forgetting is that she, like her father is a cultural conservative, um, and is very much, you know, dedicated to those things and that those ideas don't change regardless, you know, depending on who's in office. Um, even if you dislike someone personally, it doesn't matter when it comes to the the actual policies that are being put into place. And, you know, she's going to criticize people who, you know, want to come along and take away her AR-15s regardless of what she feels about them personally. So I think that on on one hand, that's that's part of it for her. I think that there's also the additional problem, as I've seen for many of my staffers, of being a woman who says these things. Uh, the amount of trash commentary that you get from the internet as a woman saying anything that is objectionable just is definitively much worse and harsher in my experience than men. I've seen this among my female employees um, who all have to have thick skin. And then for us um, as as an entity, I think part of the reason uh, that the Federalists infuriate so many people is that we don't really... we don't back off. We have a very external uh, to uh, the Sela Corridor viewpoint in terms of our people who are both, you know, on staff and who are contributors. Um, and that's something that I think, you know, tends to rile people up. I also think that we have kind of a certain uh, uh, tonal difference from a lot of the other folks who are out there where they might be more staid uh, or, uh, you know, uh, more serious in terms of their academic, you know, kind of tone that they bring to defending conservatism uh, or to, you know, making the case for their ideas. Whereas ours is, you know, as, as our slogan says, you know, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. It's, it's from a, a Calvin Coolidge speech. And it's one of these things where, you know, we we're kind of eager to go <laughs> jump into the battle and 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 mix it up, and and we're not going to be kind of reluctant. Well, on the one hand, this; on the other hand, that. Hemming and hawing our way to some kind of defeatist idea when it comes to the culture war. You know, we're going to engage it and engage it on the the terms that we believe are important, uh, and we're going to be happy about fighting it. One of the things that I think is is really wonderful is we have such a great crew of of happy young uh, writers who uh, really enjoy uh, getting in and mixing it up. And, and that's something that, you know, we valued from the beginning and, and, you know, we're still a very small team. You know, we only have 
14 people, you oh, know, wow. in terms of staff. Uh, and uh, we have a good, you know, a great number of contributors who, who write regularly for us and freelance, but, you know, we're still quite small in the big scheme of things. And so that, uh, to me, is is something that is a real item of pride, given the level of of impact that we've been able to have in in this relatively short time. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Also, I mean, I think it, the impact, because you know, that probably riles people up too. Is the uh, it's effective in ways yeah. that maybe it's less you know compelling or convincing that from from others. Uh, okay, I got, I got a lot of your time. Let me go to the uh, the final uh, six questions in sixty seconds. Where were you born? Uh, Jackson, Mississippi. You're the co-founder and publisher of The Federalist. What's one benefit and one cost of the role? Uh, the benefit is that I get to be around uh, intelligent, uh, brilliant, and very funny people. Uh, the cost is to my sleep and stress and health. <laughs> <laughs> who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Uh, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you two answers to that. Um, one is, uh, is, of all people, Newt Gingrich, who I've met when I was a kid. Uh, and has always uh, given me good advice and, and good instincts. Um, the other, I would say, uh, is uh, is actually my father, who uh, was from very early on, I would say, a a populist influence on me uh, to to not just think about things in the typical way, uh, to, but to but to view them from a, a perspective uh, that values kind of the the country mouse perspective as opposed to the city mouse. Nice. Who's one person that you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, professionally or personally, um, I'll say uh, I I really like Andy Cohen, who uh, I think has been one of the most powerful uh, people in terms of impacting pop culture in America. I think he's I think he's a sort of low-key brilliant guy in terms of uh, his impact with the Real Housewives and the Bravo franchise. Um, uh, professionally, uh, I would say, uh, gosh, that's that's harder. That's a good one. Uh, Andy, um, it works. Okay. <laughs> uh, who's one person in the media you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention? I mean, you could go down the list of that uh, piece that I wrote, but I, I think that one of the people who deserves to uh, have kind of a, a higher uh, level of, of perspective or a, a level of appreciation is Lionel Shriver, the author. She's, um, I think, uh, very interesting and, and brilliant and ought to be more in kind of that Camille Paglia position from a couple of years, you know, years back, someone, someone who people paid attention to, not just on art, but on politics. Nice. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Within a year of today, there will be some kind of coalescing within the right of center media space to form a true competitor to Fox that will not necessarily bite off an enormous chunk from it, but will represent a, a more powerful and more well-funded uh, entity than what we've seen to this point. Ben, thanks so much for doing this. Happy to join you. Thanks to Ben, co-founder, publisher of The Federalist. Go check out his podcast too, The Federalist Radio Hour. It's really good. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. Started in December of 2019, almost a year ago, three times per week. You can subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this podcast wherever you are listening to it. Please subscribe, follow, like. Uh, and also uh, rate and review. That, that goes a long way as well, if you can, in the, uh, in the comments there. This podcast is produced at Full Circle Studios in Addison, Texas. We'll be back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.